Welcome back to the Nowhere Office. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Stefan Stern. Today, we're crossing the generational divide to ask what does the Nowhere Office mean to different age groups? Yes, we're going to examine the different or similar ways in which generations handled the office, by which we mean work, before the pandemic. And and what about now? Coming up in this episode. You've got a generation of graduates coming in, Gen Z, whose the technology in the palm of their hand is more sophisticated than most technological infrastructure in most companies. And so they are now choosing to work for companies that have the best tech. I don't think we should be over-mesmerised by the suddenness of change now to assume that the new normal will be totally different from the old normal. But I think there will be big increases in efficiency. We won't waste so much time. We'll meet where we really have to meet. In my daughter's generation, they actually want to spend those first two or three years with their children. I see it as a reaction to us kind of rushing around, trying to do everything. And I don't feel, you know, I don't feel personally rejected. I I think that they, they did want the balance. A whole host of heavyweight guests there that any generation would be proud to call their own. First, you heard from the eminent generations expert and historian Eliza Philby, then Hamish McRae, the tireless economic commentator. And finally, the columnist Suzanne Moore, whose contribution is well worth waiting for. As an enticing interlude, we'll also hear a snippet of Herman Melville's Bartleby, the Scrivener, and some insight from Ipsos Mori man Ben Page, polling firm to governments and brands all around the world, on what his data can tell us about generational shifts and the nowhere office. But for now, it's over to Julia and today's panel. Never before in the history of work have so many generations worked together, wherever that place may be. And so we want to discuss the very question of generations working together and who better to do it with than three intergenerational experts. Our first expert is Monique Malcolm-Hay. She is a future of work consultant. She helps people prepare millennials and Generation Zs alike for the future of work. She's a visiting industrial fellow at Aston Business School. She's joined by Hamish McRae, who is an economist who I have to say is not of Generation Z or millennial Hamish. I say that with great admiration. And Eliza Philby is one of the foremost historians of the generations and in particular Gen Z and the shifts they're seeing. So welcome to all of you. Hello. 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 Hi. So let's begin by saying, how is it from your side of the age ledger I'm going to start with you, Hamish. You don't actually have to tell us how old you are, but it might actually help. I don't mind at all. Um, Well, I'm 77, and I spend my life writing in newspapers about economics and finance, currently in the Independent and the Eye and the, uh, the Weekly City column in the Mail on Sunday, so I'm keeping at it. How has age changed? I think that I've found two big changes. I mean, one is that there is an advantage in having seen several economic cycles. If you're writing about the economy, the cycles are all slightly different, but they all have big similarities. That's the advantage. The disadvantage is that it's quite hard to get your your mind round new investment products and mechanisms 
which are alien, like Bitcoin. So pluses and minuses. Dealing with people, I think, is the same. Monique, what about you? What's your perspective? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because people usually like to compare the younger generation to the older generation in the workplace. But actually, as somebody who manages a community of millennials and Gen Z, there are quite a lot of differences between even just the younger generation. So, for example, when you look at the millennial generation, we were the generation that grew up throughout the the adoption of, of the Internet. But Gen Z were born when the Internet was already widely adopted. So for the Gen Z generation, a, a lot of them are aspiring to become influencers and content creators. They don't typically sort of view work as going into set professions anymore. So I guess my perspective is really thinking about the fact that even amongst generations that are quite close together, there can be, be quite a lot of large differences. Eliza, it's convenient to set up these cohorts with start dates and end dates and give them letters of the alphabet. But I wonder if they're a bit too simple or artificial. Are life stages as important as, as date of birth? It's a brilliant question and a really uh, important one because, yes, of course, you know, generational categories are, as someone once said, a bit like horoscopes. You know, they're generalisations with actually a kernel of truth in them. But, you know, there's really important nuances within each generational category that need to be understood. And, you know, the, the differences within generations can be very much dependent on your gender, your sexuality, your geographical location, your economic class. I think one thing you can say is that generations are becoming more global. You know, the baby boomer cohort were that post-war generation born in the aftermath of the Second World War. And we talk about the baby boomer experience, but what we're actually saying there and talking about is a Western baby boomer experience. There was no baby boom in China, for example. So, you know, it's a very distinct Western experience. Whereas if you talk about Generation Z, you're talking about um, apps, technology, global experience, economic, political, and now a pandemic backdrop to their youth that is global their reference points their tv programs to a certain extent their music is global and you can't really say that about previous generations the way to see generational categories is as a starting point and i think i take your point about life stage and life cycle because i think that is the really important discussion particularly in respect to work because your experience of work is is yes determined by your age but really ultimately where you are in your life so if you've had kids at 19, <laughs> that's really, you know, the, the having kids bit is more important than the 19 bit, because that's really going to determine your experience of work. And the point about workplace and life stage is, of course, critical because different generations need a place of work in a different way, don't they? Monique, if your generation is fully remote, how is anybody going to learn at the knee, at the elbow of somebody else? It's a really fantastic question. And it is a real concern at the moment amongst sort of millennials and Gen Z professionals. And I think, you know, before the pandemic, what you were seeing is that you had these generations in the workplace and they were learning by osmosis, by being around people at work, by informal learning and learning on the job. But now that we're all sort of working remotely during the lockdown, that is becoming more and more difficult. But I think the interesting thing about it is you are seeing a lot of innovation in this space. 
So there are a number of startups popping up that are really trying to solve this problem. So a great example of that is um, a startup called Coach Hub, where what they do is sort of digital coaching. And it's really particularly focused on the younger generation and making sure that everybody at all stages of their career has access to great coaching, great learning, and that it enables them to develop personally and professionally. What do you make of that idea, Hamish, that the bricks and mortar is being much more inventively used in a much more purposeful way? I think we will see several things which the pandemic will absolutely change. Obviously, online shopping, but that was happening already. Whether online coaching will really work. I think we know pretty well that online coaching at universities doesn't work. I mean, having the kids in, um, in halls crammed together, but not actually having physical lectures, that really, really doesn't work. And they're rightly pretty angry about being uh, charged for things that they don't get. So I think we will learn. It'll take time to learn. And I don't think we should be over-mesmerized by the suddenness of change now to assume that the new normal will be totally different from the old normal. Mm. But I think there will be big increases in efficiency. We won't waste so much time. We'll meet where we really have to meet. We will have people learning from each other in offices, seeing how someone else does it. Well, we have to do that. And I suspect intuitively, I may be wrong here, the new normal will look more like the old normal than a lot of people assume. Eliza, yes, you wanted to you wanted to add something there. I think. I, I think Hamish is absolutely right. Is that what the COVID pandemic has done is accelerated stuff that was always hap- already happening, and you know one of the things that millennials as a generation triggered was you know greater requests, greater concentration, and prioritization of a more flexible working schedule, um, to the benefit of older workers actually who have more responsibilities and arguably more need for it. And I think you know millennials and Gen Z are coming to expect, and this is the key point inbuilt work flexibility and the potential for remote working within jobs and they will start to prioritize and the talent will go to those companies that offer greater flexibility but I think also I think we're looking to a future that is you know it's been said before this is not groundbreaking point here but hybrid and and flexible in its truest sense and I think we're talking about not just one office, we're talking about three offices now. We're talking about the actual building, the HQ, which is going to in itself have to be reinvented. But then you've got the home office, because actually all statistics point and opinion polls point to the fact that actually when workers want to be remote, they actually want to work from home. So what involvement does the company have in, in fitting out the home office, our company's going to start paying, paying for home Wi-Fi, um, buying home furniture, that kind of thing. And then the final office is the virtual office, the true virtual office, the tech infrastructure that now has to be as, I think, sophisticated and well designed and thought through as the HQ. Because you've got a generation of graduates coming in, Gen Z, whose the technology in the palm of their hand is more sophisticated than most technological infrastructure in most companies. And so they are now choosing to work for companies that have the best tech. Monique, I'd like to ask your thoughts about the danger of over-promising freedom and choice. Because, for example, the day that we're recording this interview, there's a big story in the Financial Times saying that bosses, if you like, the C-suite, they are basically all back in their offices. And the issue is persuading everybody else to go back. So is there not a bit of a power struggle happening that we're, we're, we're over, overlooking? 
Yes, I think that's a great point. And even from the organisations I've spoken to, both large and small, um, I can definitely see this this trend happening where you have the C-suite back in the office and they are really trying to persuade and encourage millennials and Gen Z to, to come back in. But I think to Eliza's point earlier, I think one of the, the issues around that is the fact that you have so many other companies out there who have now sort of put their flexible working policies out to the public and committed to allowing people to work from anywhere. Um, and what that means is you are really going to see that companies are going to struggle to retain this generation because they will quite simply, you know, up and, and move across to another organisation who is promising to give true flexibility. I, I think that companies will set up structures for trying to make sure that someone joining the company understands not only the nuances and the subtleties, but also the culture of the place. So I think that what happens, and this really reflects what's been said already, the office becomes a club. You know, it is the center where you go to. I think that there has to be physical interaction. I don't think you're going to get rid of it. I think it'll take five years just to settle down as to see to what extent we, we devise systems which make sure that the office becomes a true club. Eliza, I think, what it is. Well, I mean, I think we're looking <laughs> at something more profound here, which is the cultural importance of work in people's lives is changing. And let me be specific that I'm talking about white-collar workers, okay? And, and I think that for a long time, for white-collar workers, those in the professions... Work was where they socialized, it's where they learn, it's where they, you know, they were mentored, it's where they potentially most of them met their loved ones. The cultural importance of work in their lives, it was their identity. You know, it was often the first question you got asked when meeting new people is what do you do? And I think actually, maybe hopefully as well, it'd be a positive thing that work doesn't have that that place in our lives in a way. It's more balanced. You've got to remember, a bit like school, you know, we're wrong to assume that young people just learn things in school. You know, now they have the world's information in the palm of their hand. They are getting information. They are getting, you know, not just learning online, but they're meeting different people and they're learning from them in real life. In different ways, we have a myriad of influences now and a myriad of tribes that we belong to. And maybe work, work will be just one of many, uh, just one place of many places that we learn, that we interact and that we socialise and not the key part of our identity. And that's, remember, that happened to blue collar workers, arguably in the deindustrialization period, the decline of working men's clubs, for example. Maybe that's the broader story here, which is the decline of worker association within the professional classes. Oh, thank you so much. Yet again, I always feel that these discussions confirm that the nowhere office is somewhere, but nowhere it's going to end up, as uh, evidenced by what we've heard from our splendid guests today, Eliza Philby, Monique Malcolm-Hay and Hamish McRae. Thank you all very much indeed. Our history of the office this week comes in the form of one of the great stories of office life, Herman Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener. I guess the author of Moby Dick wrote it in two instalments about the life of a busy lawyer and what he asked his young clerk to do. It is read by our producer, Callum McRae. Ginger Nut was a lad some 12 years old. His father was a car man, ambitious of seeing his son on the bench instead of a cart before he died. So he sent him to my office as a student at law, 
errand boy and cleaner and sweeper at the rate of one dollar a week. He had a little desk to himself, but he did not use it much. Upon inspection, the drawer exhibited a great array of the shells of various sorts of nuts. Indeed, to this quick-witted youth, the whole noble science of the law was contained in a nutshell. Not the least among the employments of Ginger Nut, as well as one which he discharged with the most alacrity, was his duty as cake and apple purveyor for turkey and nippers. Copying law papers, being proverbially dry, husky sort of business, my two scriveners were fain to moisten their mouths very often with Spitzenbergs to be had at the numerous stalls nigh the custom house and post office. Also, they sent Ginger Nut very frequently for that peculiar cake, small, flat, round and very spicy, after which he had been named by them. Of a cold morning when business was but dull, Turkey would gobble up scores of these cakes, as if they were mere wafers. Indeed, they sell them at the rate of six or eight for a penny, the scrape of his pen blending with the crunching of the crisp particles in his mouth. Of all the fiery afternoon blunders and flurried rashnesses of Turkey was his once moistening a ginger cake between his lips and clapping it onto a mortgage for a seal. I came within an ace of dismissing him then, but he mollified me by making an oriental bow and saying, With submission, sir, it was generous of me to find you in stationery on my own account. Now, my original business, that of a conveyancer and title-hunter and drawer-up of recondite documents of all sorts, was considerably increased by receiving the master's office. There was now great work for scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now, pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him, glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect, which I thought might operate beneficially upon the flighty temper of Turkey and the fiery one of Nippers. Well, the world of work, who better to speak to than Suzanne Moore, much loved, much read columnist at uh, The Guardian, Mail on Sunday, and now at The Daily Telegraph. She always gives it to you straight, and I know that's what we'll get today. Suzanne, hello. Thanks very much for, for coming along. Hello. I wanted to ask you about the, the Telegraph because it's a new column. So you're, you're like a new mm. person. Have you actually been to their office ever? Have you met anyone from the paper? <laughs> no, it's really strange starting a job in lockdown because I haven't been to the office. I, I just speak to people on the phone. I have met the person who directly edits me because she lives near me and I knew her before but no I haven't met any any of the comment people I haven't met the editor it is it's really strange never never having been there yeah do you not itch to go in and sort of see the lay of the land when you can do so the hybrid model a couple of days in the telegraph's office no I don't really uh because I don't think I will want to write there um so long since I've written in an office I would like to meet a few of the people because I've written for different sections like the travel section and the book section and those people have been really nice the emails have been really nice I would, I would just like to go and say hello yeah but I have no desire to be in an office really because 
It's so long since I have been. I don't know how to behave. <laughs> no, seriously, I don't know how to behave. And I mean, in, especially if you're writing, I would just listen to everyone else's conversations or get sort of distracted because you have to kind of switch yourself off to write a little bit, don't you? In some ways, I feel as a writer, as a journalist, you are perpetually working in a nowhere office because your words go out there digitally so in some ways, you're the perfect poster child for the nowhere office, for this liminal future where maybe mm-hmm. we potter about and meet in actual spaces, but maybe we don't. Ahead of the curve, Suzanne. Well, at the beginning, do you remember the first lockdown? I, I, a lot of journalists were writing pieces that I felt were very smug and self-satisfied, like, I know I've got this, guys, I know how to do this. And right from the beginning, I thought, no, you're not the right people to tell other people how to behave because actually, you know, I'm sure we've all known people who have done really well in their careers, but when they go freelance, the bit they miss is the office and because you're actually on your own all day and they don't want to be on their own. And the bit I missed in lockdown, even though I'm used to being on my own all day because that's how I've worked for many years, is I then built in a social life or a, or a time of seeing people and so when that bit went during the you know the strictest lockdowns when that bit went I was as I was as stuck as everybody else about every day feeling much the same how do you structure things so even though I'd had that experience of being on my own and working on my own it was a lockdown was a new experience for me definitely there was I think there was a lot of almost like official denial of how anxious people really felt and it came out in different ways Mm. part of that denial might also be what we're talking about in this episode today about the the multi the generational tensions or inequalities if you like because if it's it's hard for what I could patronizingly call grown-ups how much harder for younger people who are at the start of what we used to call a career or at least working life and, and they yeah, really 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 hard I mean that sort of simple issue of you know I don't like the phrase but making contacts or you know something banging into someone in the office or wherever you work the I love that are you avoiding saying the word networking Suzanne you actually are aren't you I am yeah <laughs> Okay, I'll say it. I'll say it. Beep it out. No, no, yeah. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. The synchronicity of, 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 of and and friends of mine, especially who I really noticed it, who were teaching, and the idea that people who, who weren't going to school weren't teaching is not true. They were teaching on Zoom, sure, many, many, many hours a day, uh, lecturing, teaching in universities and schools, and, and finding it really, really difficult to get their students. To, to, to feel that they were making actual contact with their students, even though they knew their students were on the other side of the screen, they, they were finding that really difficult. My, my naive and nostalgic assumption or memory or fake memory is that in the first 20 years or so of work, when I was in an office, I learned things from people who were older than me, telling me fairly directly what I just got wrong. Yeah. Sometimes nicely, sometimes not so. And, I, and that actually, of course, in the last 10 years, I've started learning things from younger people, especially on social media, actually. But I, I just worry about the 20-something person yeah. at the start of things 
whatever they're doing, whether it's high level, you know, white collar professional service, whatever, whichever workplace, they are, just the conversations, like you say, the, 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 the shared experience, the helpful tips and comments. It's hard. No, I, I mean, I, I think, I think you're completely right. And I, I sort of, so, so my youngest is in her first year at college and, and that's just been entirely on, on Zoom. So she's had no real social life. I kind of feel that that generation, the people who are at college, the people who are meant to be doing A-levels, it's almost like at the end of all this, we should sort of do some sort of reparations. I, I, I really feel like they've, uh, they've lost the normal rites of passage of leaving home, going to college, hanging out, you know, all the stuff. I just say to mine, you know, it's all going to be better next year because what else can, can you say? But, of course, none of us actually know what it's going to be like. But, yeah, that... I would say that sort of 16 to 24 generation have really, really had it hard and still are because even, you know, with vaccinations, they're going to be the last ones who get, get it, you know. So even in terms of travelling, say, over summer, they can't. So I think, yes, we can all say that COVID, you know, hit vulnerable people, but this is a different, this is a different kind of vulnerability, isn't it, that you're talking about? I also think, though, that Gen Z, which broadly speaking, we're talking about the millennials and Gen Z, I think they were changing work before the pandemic. I don't mm. think they wanted to work all the time. I don't think they had the same work ethic, which is not in any way to say they're lazy. It's to do with they wanted a more balanced, blended life, partly afforded by the mobility of technology. So in some ways, I think they have been deeply, badly, terribly undermined by the pandemic because they weren't all as committed to the workplace as we were. And now they've kind of, they have been left nowhere. Yeah, I can, I completely agree with you, Julie. And the way that I, it, that I see it is, you know, you, you have kids, I have kids, uh, is that we had kids, but we went back to work very quickly. We were concerned to work, to get childcare. And I was, I'd say in my daughter's generation, they actually want to spend those first two or three years with their children and mm -hmm. they would rather have less money and mm. less stuff and be with their kids and I see I see it as a reaction to us kind of rushing around trying to do everything you'd be in the office but you'd actually have like a cauliflower in your bag that you were taking home because you were rushing I see them kind of rejecting that and and I don't feel bad you know I don't feel personally rejected I, I think that they they did want the balance how we get there now given uh, what is going to happen economically you know it requires a certain amount of money doesn't it to have this flexible working I think fascinating now Suzanne's had an even more turbulent time than most last March which seemed difficult to believe isn't that right Stefan Yes, that's right. Back in March uh, 2020, Suzanne wrote a Guardian piece in support of a, a women's group deemed to be transphobic by some. And a letter was sent to the paper which contained 338 signatures from some of her colleagues at the Guardian. It didn't name Suzanne, but it very much decried her writing. And while she was getting lots of support in private from all sorts of distinguished people at the paper, in public, she didn't get any. And then I suppose that pressure kept building to the point where she felt she had to leave the paper. Yeah, I was going to ask the sort of traditional and obvious question of if you had had this nice big desk with your name on it and, and been there two or three days a week regularly for whatever, mm. a presence, 
Mm. Would that have made it harder for the these letter campaigns? I think yes. I think I think so. I think I think I think it would have been complete. Yeah, I think it would have been a really different situation actually. Because when I think about say my time at the Mail on Sunday, where I didn't go in um, very much, but I mean, I I would sit next to Peter Hitchens, and I mean, we would have screaming rows with each other, and then just go and get a cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it, to me, that was what newspapers were like, that you could openly and vocally disagree with people, but you got on with it. So this idea that someone has written something that I disagree with and therefore they must, you know, that's it, that's the end of the world, was new to me. Yes, and I, and I, I, don't, I felt that most strongly, obviously, about the people who had signed the letter who I knew. Why, why didn't they? just give me a call or anything I mean one actually to be fair one of them did we had a row on the phone but that to me at least that was <laughs> that was a human you know contact right because I didn't know most of the other people you're describing something I think really interesting about the future of the office which is the sort of politics of presenteeism which is if yes. we're not careful we're going to get a sort of power system hidden where the nod and the wink says that such and such happens at such and such a time. And if you miss it because you've got childcare duties or because you think you're genuinely making a choice to work hybrid, you might be out of the loop. You might be less powerful than if you were present. But none of that is easy to articulate and easy to deny. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I think you're right. I think had I been there, I don't think it would have happened in the same way at all, no. And I think I would have been defended. Uh, I mean, people like Hadley did defend me in public, but, but a lot of people just kept quiet. And that's the other thing, you know, because it's, the, the, the Guardian has huge open conference where everybody can go, but there's a hierarchy there. And some people speak and some people don't. And that's, you know, that's the thing that's not always said, isn't it? That it can appear that things are a democratic decision. But, you know, I mean, Polly Toynbee's not sitting on the floor, but somebody, <laughs> and, and nor should she, I love Polly Toynbee. Hang on, I love Polly Toynbee. She's, she's been great to me all my career and mm. was doing this situation, but, you know, there are chairs for certain people and there are other people who just cram in and sit on the floor. And, 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 and you know, I mean, it's funny talking about young people because um, I think really, you know, the, the, they're very scared of young people. The editors are very scared of young people, very scared of them. Because they don't really understand them or they just... <laughs> they might shout at them, they might call them, um, you know, a sexist, racist, misogynist, transphobe. They might cancel them, they might... You know, especially during the the last few years, and the, you can imagine the arguments within an organisation like the Guardian over what was going on in the Labour Party, for instance, over anti-Semitism. I mean, there were just two sides, and and within the Guardian, and the idea that there could be a debate or nuance or anything, you know, it, it just wasn't going to happen. You were if you did not support Corbyn. That was because you were a Tory. And if you said anything about anti-Semitism, you know, I mean, it was it was a very polarising time. And the last few years have been very polarising. I mean, I know people now say that it's the Tories that have invented the culture wars and everything. But actually, it's been going on for some time that there are certain lines to take. Well, one day, 
maybe we'll be back in the office one day being nice to each other and listening to each other and shouting each other all the time we can shout some of the time as long as we go to the pub afterwards thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us today it was terrific listening to you and could have gone on all day really all right lovely to see everybody Just before we go, here's a little taster of next episode in which we talk to Ben Page of Ipsos Mori about his whole take on the issue of the nowhere office, not least because he's had this to say about generations. This idea that every generation has completely different expectations from work is a fallacy. And actually, most people, everybody wants to be treated fairly. Everybody wants development. And actually, most people want careers. They, they don't want piecemeal gig type jobs um, and that's something sometimes Silicon Valley pushes this idea but actually when we've looked at different generations aspirations at work there are cultural differences around how much deference and informality you might want or indeed structure but actually you know people mostly want quite similar things interestingly and with an aging population and needing to get people in there working beyond 55 which is a rarity in Britain these days um, all of that, I think, is important. So that's it for today. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. Thank you for listening to this episode with me and Stefan Stern. Our wonderful guests were Monique Malcolm-Hay, Eliza Philby, Hamish McRae, Ben Page, who comes in fully next episode, and finally, Suzanne Moore. A huge thanks to each of them for their insights. Don't forget, you can listen to our previous episodes by going to wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribing to The Nowhere Office. Follow the show on Twitter, that's at The Nowhere Offie One, and share your stories of The Nowhere Office with friends and colleagues. Our producer is Callum McRae, and this is an Editorial Intelligence production. <laughs>